Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. In today's special release day episode, I am joined by Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger to discuss their new book, Pivot, the priorities, practices, and powers that can transform your church into a Tove culture, published today, September 19th, with Tyndale Elevate. Scott and Laura, welcome to Kingdom Roots. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you, Cody. Thank yeah, you. It's, yeah. it's, good to, it's good to be back with you both. Let's start here. Um, Laura, I assume that this video that was posted to social medias of Scott uh, emulating this famous scene from Friends where Ross is yelling the word pivot, I'm assuming this was your idea? Well, imagine my shock and surprise when I log on. I received, a, I should say, I received a text message from my parents and it was that video. No, no. <laughs> he just did that all on his own. And Cody, this is another funny story. When we were trying to figure out, we were going back and forth, like, what should we name this book? My dad suggested the title Pivot. And I said, Dad, we cannot name this book Pivot. All anyone's going to think of is the famous Friends episode. Of course. And his reply was, oh, I've never heard of that show. Yes, it's yes. Not, and nobody knows what you're that episode. So don't worry, nobody will think of that. And now he's graduated to making videos reenacting the famous scene. <laughs> that was all amazing. Him. Scott, Scott, this video uh, now, I checked this morning, this video now has 35,000 views on Twitter. Can you believe this? <laughs> I'm not surprised. I'm not one bit surprised because it is a high quality moment that was staged and prepared for for hours as Chris and I scripted the scene. And uh... <laughs> 35,000. No. This may be the most viewed piece of content you've ever created. <laughs> and, and it has nothing to do with me. It, it's all everybody laughing about imitating a show called Friends, which I have never watched. <laughs> but have you now seen the scene? That's really what the listeners want to know. Have you now at least seen this one scene with Ross yelling? Tell him, Laura. Tell him, Laura. He's, he has seen the scene because Perfect. I sent him the clip of it. Oh, good. Brilliant. <laughs> yes. I love Pivot. that. Pivot! <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... We're here to talk about Pivot. I mean, it's gaining a lot of social media traction thanks to Scott's brilliant video. I guess let's just start with a really basic question then. Uh, why Pivot? Why this book? Why now at this particular moment in time? Why are you all back together writing this book? Well, I can answer that one. We... This is Laura's question. <laughs> we... So after a church called Tove released, we got a lot of interest in that hmm. book surprisingly yeah. i had never written a book before i'm a public school teacher um i had no idea what to expect i certainly did not expect the outpouring of interest that we got in the book and we got letters and requests for interviews and podcasts etc um so people had time to absorb it and talk about it and digest it and they started we started getting frequent questions. People started asking us more and more frequently, okay, how can we do this? How can we transform our culture to make it more Tove? Or um, I see some toxic um, traits in my culture. How do I initiate change and, and make it a culture of goodness like you describe? 
And the other one that we kept getting is was from lay people. Like, I see some toxic problems. What can I do as a lay person to initiate change in my church? So those questions just, they did not go away. They became more and more frequent as time went on. And we wrote Pivot to answer those those questions. Pivot is really about um, init- changing I shouldn't, I don't want to use the word change. It's transforming Hmm. culture into one of goodness. Hmm. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's, that's the answer. We were getting all these questions and we were, let's say at first stumbling and fumbling along answering them. I mean, I, I think in some ways Tove sets the tone for pivot. I mean, it, it in some ways provided many of the answers that we've developed in in pivot but they hadn't been worked out in a strategy and with any kind of practical insight so uh because that first book was more about let's say an expose of toxicity and what is the christian alternative that that should be there instead of that toxicity what is tov so it, it provided let's say the broad sketch of what was needed but how to get there is more the strategy of the second book. And we had a, uh, we had a, a good editor for the first book and the second editor really uh, formed the questions that are at the end of every chapter, which uh, we've been told is, makes the book worth the price. Got it. So. Yeah, and we'll come, we'll come back to that in a minute, the practical nature of the book. So it's fair then to consider Pivot a sequel, a follow-up to the Tove book, is that right? Well, in some ways, I guess, but it, you don't have to have, you don't have to read Tove in order to use Pivot. Um, it might help with understanding the depth of that Hebrew word Tove and what it means and the theology, but you don't have to have, you don't have to read it to um, use and apply the content of Pivot. Would you agree with that, Dad? Yeah, it, it is. It is, in a sense, a follow-up. And if you could look at the title of the book, you can see that the last three letters backwards are Tove. But that's just that's just because that happened, not because we t- we didn't pick Pivot because that worked. I didn't even see it until <laughs> someone. It's the first thing I saw. I thought, I wonder if their titles were limited to words that have the word Tove in them. I asked myself that question. No, in fact, I was with some friends on Wednesday night and I gave them a copy. And one of the questions was, so how did you think of that? Like you found a word that had Tove in it. (laughs) And I started said, you guys, my dad and I did not even see it. The publisher saw it. (laughs) That's actually amazing. I would not have anticipated that. Oh, they rolled over laughing. They're like, that is so funny. That's the genius of the title. I said, I know, we didn't see it. (laughs) I think, but he, but I think what happened is Laura went out to dinner with someone and they, and this uh, woman is like a cover designer for books. And she just started using a different angle. And when the, the different angle showed up, it just became so obvious. But it is true. The editor said the last three letters are Tove and and then Laura redesigned, she and her friend redesigned the cover. So it now really shows up. It was harder to see. We thought it was pretty cool once the editor, the publishers uh, mentioned it. But uh, it is a follow-up, but it is, 
a genuinely second book. I mean, yeah. and Laura's right. You don't have to read Toe to read Pivot. It, it, it works entirely on its own. And we think it will be used in uh, classrooms, seminary settings, churches to, to ponder what churches can do to make some changes. Yeah. I mean, I uh, I actually admittedly didn't think of Ross right away when I read the title of the book. I, um, you know, throughout the pandemic, those of us who were in church ministry, you know, pivot was is a pretty common word that a lot of people used to describe the ways in which things had to shift and change through the last, you know, season of all of our lives. And so it does make sense as a word for uh, changing quickly, transitioning, all of those things make sense. Before we get into the the practical features of the book, I do want to mention, Laura, I don't know if you know this, but I taught a class last year where I assigned the TOEF book to my students and they raved about it and mm -hmm. found it incredibly helpful in the course that I was teaching. It was a systems and structures course, and they just found it to be incredibly helpful in considering some of these important things. So I'm not surprised uh, that it, that the book got so much interest and so much inquiry. Could we just go back for a second? What were some of the most common questions or inquiries that people made about the book? You know, you mentioned that people were reaching out, email, letters, possibly maybe even through Twitter and other social media platforms. What were people reaching out about primarily? Was it praise for the book? I mean, I know I've heard a lot of praise for the book in my context. What were some of the questions they were asking that sort of motivated the writing of this book? Scott, do you want to lead the way on this one? Well, um, the, you know, the most common question was, you know, how do we do this? Right. Um, Amazingly, um, we've only had like one negative review that, I mean, I'm sure they're, they're out there. I don't go out there and, and try to find out what people are saying about me or about Pivot. I, and furthermore, that's, I don't think that's, that's very healthy to be looking at that kind of thing. You know, you do your thing and you put it out there and you let, let people respond. If they contact you, then you can respond to them. Um, but I, I think the, um, I think the, the most common statement to us was that the book gave words yeah. to people's experience in churches, that the traits of toxicity, and in particular, the false narratives mm -hmm. uh, that, that people were hearing, uh, what, what I think is a lot of people have become very suspicious of the way institutions explain events. Yes. And I think we have given people uh, reasons to be suspicious and categories that they can analyze. So that would be that would be one of the major the major things. And uh, uh, you know, it, this is not a book designed for Roman Catholics or Southern Baptists with an ecclesiology. It's more of an ethics book. Both of these books are about forming culture in churches, and we hope they are trans-denominational. Uh, I was in a conversation the other day with someone who is a, I don't, know, I don't know if he's a minister or what, in a denomination, and he wanted to press the importance of elders. I said, well, I said, elders, what does that mean? I mean, if you're Baptist, you don't call them elders, they're called deacons. And if you're Presbyterians, you got teaching elders. And what, you know, I don't, I'm not sure that's going to help, but I it could, you know, we could bring it into church. Uh, it's called church polity. But I think that distracts from what's actually going on in the book is we're asking churches, institutions to evaluate themselves. Yeah. And then to take 
uh, progressive steps of evaluation that lead to transformation. That's that's what we're doing. We're, we're not we don't care what kind of denomination or institution it is. <laughs> Laura, you got anything on that? Um, I was just, I was listening intently. Um, you know, we got a lot of, um, mail from people who had been abused in some type of church situation. And it was largely people who were victims of some sort of power abuse in church. There was a little bit of sexual abuse, but it was almost largely power abuse situations. And I think they saw us as maybe a safe landing spot. Um, They connected with what we wrote and felt like it was validating that it gave them, like my dad said, language for what they were experiencing. And that um it was overwhelming at times you know like i said at the beginning i'm i'm a public school teacher so to have was like i would i would teach little kids during the day phonics and then come home in the evenings and weekends and be a sounding board for somebody who had been a victim of abuse it was a little bit like it's disorienting sometimes but um i would say that was largely the interest that we were getting. And then people wanted to talk about it. So we were invited to a lot of different podcasts or webinars and um, just to put information out there, give people a language for what was going on and what they were experiencing. Yeah, thank you, Scott. I know you've mentioned the number before, but if you had to ballpark the number of, you know, podcasts, you know, inquiries for speaking engagements, that sort of thing based on Tove, what, what would you ballpark the number as for, for both of you together and either one of you? How many, how many of you guys done at this point? He okay. has a list. I, I have my, I, I just marked it down. 195. Yeah. 195. Now, Cody, like, I've done about 50 on Revelation. Okay. I don't know how many you've done because you've done some on your own that, uh, I don't know that Laura's done very many podcasts on Tove or Pivot on her own, but I think you've done some. Yeah, I've done I've uh, done a number. But just by yourself? Well, I get invited to do like like something for women or teachers, so they have kind of added up. But I haven't I haven't done as many as you. Yeah. But but here's the thing, I this has struck a nerve with people. Well, that's why I'm asking about uh, the number. Yeah. Yeah, it's it it's struck a nerve and people are looking for guidance. Mm-hmm. And we think that our book is one of the books that can be put on the table for them to read and think about. Both of these yeah. books, Tove and Pivot. Yeah. Yeah, again, I think for my students uh, reading Tove, yeah, it was both it was really eye-opening and also like you've described gave language to so much of what they've experienced and and left them, you know, ultimately feeling as though they wanted uh, to create and nurture, nurture is the word that I really like, uh, alternative forms of cultures or to see transformation of culture. I want to come to the practical nature of this book as a follow-up in a second. But first, Laura, I want to ask you, what was it like to write a book with your dad for a second time? Well, I'll tell you what it's like. So, Please. okay. So first of all, it is fun. <laughs> Let's hear this. I'm not okay. heard this. No, I'm excited because <laughs> no, I, I, I share this experience. 
you. So I'm really excited to hear about. So he doesn't. Like so he doesn't like Google Docs. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. When you are writing a book together, it is not the best format to be emailing long manuscripts back and forth, but rather Google Docs makes it more easily accessible. And then I would find notes in Google Docs, like, Laura, I have to go take a phone call in the Google Docs manuscript. And I have a picture of it. Um, so it was funny slash fun slash he still doesn't use Google Docs. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Okay, we didn't do He'll start with Google Docs, and then he'll be like, no more Google Docs, and then we have to mail it back and forth. But I had to learn. I used, we did Google Docs, the whole Tove and the whole Pivot, until we we were near the end. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Till the end. Then we moved to the the proper format called Microsoft Word. But Cody and I just (laughs) did manuscripts. I don't think we ever did Google Docs. No, we just emailed back and forth, made track changes and edits. Yes. I despise track changes. So do I. I don't like it at all. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's kind you of weird. Uh, you go with what you got. Yeah, that yeah. I, I agree. I agree. Google uh, track changes is, is a nuisance and it's hard to get rid of them and sometimes it's hard to find them. But I just wrote a book with Tommy Phillips, who's mm-hmm. one of our grads, who's a pastor in Tampa. We just submitted it. I submitted it. What's today? Monday. I submitted it Friday to Zondervan. And uh, we wrote that book with some kind of Microsoft Word that you could share. Hmm. And then the problem was trying to figure out how to get it from that to a Microsoft Word file. And I just, <laughs> I, I think there's a way of doing it. And I think I figured it out, but I wouldn't know how to do it again. But uh but uh, but here here's the real issue is is that um, as someone who's been doing this for a long time, you know I'm been this is my forty first year of teaching. Um, I I would write sections and then I'd say, well, this is a section uh, or an area Laura can write on, or I'd say, Laura, read this book and then you incorporate this right here. So this second book, I. I sort of made, uh, Laura got some assignments. She was a lot busier teaching this second book than she was the first one. Hmm. There's a there's an editorial reason for this, not our problem. Um, but the first book, Laura would just, she drafted a lot of things first, and then I edited them. This time it was more, I drafted many things first, and then she edited, but also she she took the, the Mike Lucan and Kent Carlson story from renovation of a church, and she developed all that. And then we both read some very similar books or identical books, and then we both incorporated some of that into sidebars and various parts of the book. So, um, you know, we don't we don't usually get into arguments about. I don't <laughs> think we have our, we don't have any arguments about no, what we should were- be said. We worked well together. Like I knew my role. I was finding examples, finding stories. He does, dad does the theology. And then we both read what each other wrote and add things and edit. Is that how you guys did it for Revelation? Yeah, pretty similar, I think. Yeah, Cody wrote some things. But the thing is, Laura, we taught a class. Well, I taught a class and Cody worked with me while I was teaching the class. 
So we almost composed the ideas of the book in note form and uh, in the class. And then when we started, I would write it and then Cody would do it. But then you added other things. And of course, Cody was a really good editor at rearranging. And then we had we had an odd editor at first that we had to got <laughs> yeah, hurdle. That's, that's I got a hurdle to get. You have to get the book going forward. Yeah, that's its own podcast. Um, I want to get to the practical stuff in just one minute, but what was most surprising in the writing process? I, I know that so much of writing is discovering ideas along the way, being surprised by things that maybe you write or you realize maybe is more important than you had initially imagined. What were some things that came up through the writing of this book that, that feel really central or maybe were really surprising to you, either one of you? You know, for me, when I look back at the process, we, I, I, the book renovation of the church really meant a lot to me and their process and their honesty and vulnerability. And that book, and then just coupled with um, my own therapy and changes, like ultimately what stands out is we can do all these things, right? We can hire really talented people we can like go to therapy we can um we can hire educated charismatic people for our churches but ultimately god is the one that does the transformation and i hope that that comes through i think it does it comes through as as most central in pivot that we invite him in and submit to what he says and then follow where he leads and he will he is the one that does the work of transformation you know the um this is a this is a part of the writing process we had a really good editor who um, his name is steve who had some really good and formative ideas for the book and i i told laura many times I think we had about 10 chapters, maybe nine. And I said, I think we could start with any chapter and write the whole book from that chapter and then rearrange how the book is done. Well, you know, let's just say 10 random chapters on something is not the best order for a book. So our editor suggested he was we were talking. I was sitting right here in this chair and we were talking on a Zoom session with him. And he said, well, the first three are kind of the priorities. And then I came up with, I think, the practices and the powers. But because of that, we had to write, I wrote separate chapters on the Holy Spirit and on grace. But in many ways, theologically, I would like to have begun there, but it would distract from the significance of the topic uh, to give to lay out something theologically. So to end exactly where Laura's talking about yeah. is on the work of God in our lives is is just a, a bold reminder at the end. It's sort of like, don't get too excited about what you can accomplish on this. You know, you're going to have to rely on God to do some serious transformation if you're going to actually pull this off. Yeah. And for me, the mo the biggest surprise. Uh, and it actually started before we wrote this book, but I had no idea what, how it would happen. As I was taught, teaching at Northern in a class, and a student in the back had a PhD in organizational transformation. 
and I was talking about Tove, and he said something like this, you got all the right ideas, but all the wrong terms. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, nobody talks about Tove in organizational transformation. I said, well, of course. But then he said this, he, and this was something that was so important, other than the fact that he put us on to Edgar Schein's book. And that is, he said, in organizational transformation, we say that it takes seven years to transform an organization when there is commitment to make that change, that transformation. So for me, the hardest chapter to write, because it required so much research, but also careful thinking and not getting too detailed, was a chapter called Build a Coalition. Hmm. Is This, to me, is one of the most important uh, themes that came up, is because you can't do this top-down, Cody. You can't just, as a pastor, preacher, say this is the seven characteristics of Tove, and I'll do it. Um, mm-hmm. You have to build a coalition. And I actually had a, a podcaster the other day a little irritated. He says, well, church is not a democracy. I said, well, if you don't include everybody, uh, you're just going to be top-down authoritative. And he mm-hmm. just kind of sat back, and I think he took a good long look at himself. And that is, I think that you have to you have to start talking to people and find out what people want so that the the people, let's say, to use the business term, the stakeholders in the church own the vision. It's not that you gave it to them. It's that they participated in forming that vision. And that's the coalition that requires lots of time and energy uh, and prayer and time away studying the Bible before you can actually come up with this sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think that story that you just told about the interaction with the podcaster is a great example for, I think what you're trying to do in the book, which is an invitation to, you know, self and organizational evaluation, a long look at the self that's going to take a lot of time. So it's broken up into three parts. The book is um, like every good uh, pastor, you have some good alliteration going on here. I heard a pastor say once that he has the spiritual gift of alliteration. I'd like to think that I have that one too. So the book is broken up in priorities, three chapters, practices, three chapters, and then powers, three chapters. And um, but each each starts with pivotal, pivotal priorities. Pivotal right. I'm priorities. sorry. It's, it's the <laughs> extra power. emphasis that happens here through the alliterative qualities that are taking place. I want to end in the last few minutes that we have, as we think through some of these chapters then together, one of the the aims of what you were working towards here with this book is is something really practical. And so can can each of you speak to some of the features of the book? I know that there's there's a couple of tools that you recommend at the end of the book that you've created and and a few other resources, but then there's getting to work sections that you've incorporated. Can can you speak to some of the real practical features, how this will actually help both individuals and and churches really get to pivoting and experiencing that kind of transformation? So I just want to hear you talk another P about the practical nature of the book pivot. Laura, do you want to lead the way on that one? Yes. I, something that came Um, became really important as we researched this topic of transforming culture is knowing where you're at Hmm. very clearly. I'm a teacher, right? So before I start teaching a unit, I don't want to teach these sight words. That's what we call them in kindergarten. If they already know the sight words, right? Um, So before I start teaching, I need to identify where my students are at 
And the same goes for the reason, this is what the research says about culture too, is you need to assess your current culture. You need to know what it's like to live in it, what people mm -hmm. are experiencing. You cannot start changing anything until you have very clearly identified what the problem is. So we created a Tove tool. It's not the only one out there. There's lots of different cultural assessments, but it it is a, it is the place where organizations need to begin. Mm -hmm. And when I say this, I keep thinking there were so many examples that we have heard about a former church of mine included, where the organization would give the staff a survey. And then before the survey was even returned, they were influencing the staff on how to answer questions. So it needs to be an whatever survey or whatever tool is is picked, it needs to be authentic, you need to let people honestly evaluate where they're at. And I believe it was it was either Kent Carlson or Mike Lucan, the authors of the book that we reference as a case study in Pivot, is sometimes that's the hardest part is is confronting your own character and the organization's um, I don't know what to call it toxicity, right? Mm -hmm. And but you have to be you have to be honest with yourself about where you're at with where the organization is at. And until that is clearly identified, you can't initiate the transformation that we write about. So I think that's one of the most important steps you can, that can't be skipped over is you have to do some sort of assessment. So you know where you're starting, you know what what is Tove and what is toxic and what needs to change. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I know at the beginning of the book, you talk about courage and listening and vulnerability and this sort of invitation. As you were talking, I was thinking about that famous grad speech from David Foster Wallace in 2005, where he begins with that parable, you know, two young fish were swimming along and then the older fish asks them, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish look at one another and say, what the hell is water? And uh, it's a little bit like that, right? Like we're not always aware of the waters that we're swimming in. So I was just thinking of that. What about for you, Scott, in terms of the practical nature of, of helping organizations uh, build cultures uh, that resist abuse and cultivate goodness? What, what comes to mind for you about the book? Um, okay, uh, a couple things. And this we picked up from, um, we recognize the significance of culture. From Edgar Schein, we learned that some of the most important elements of culture are totally invisible and below the surface and it requires uh, probably outsiders but at least some very careful thinking to discover what's actually below the surface so for instance uh, we used edgar shine used uh, lily pads in a pond and we uh, we swiped the idea and then turned it into a peach tree because laura has a peach tree in her backyard that is useless uh, it produces it produces figs <laughs> tasteless figs she says something like that all right so what so what we did is um, we drew some diagrams of a peach tree and below the surface uh, we showed the signs of toxicity and this these are things that actually drive a church and I did 
I did some really hard thinking on this and uh, combined it with the manifestations of the flesh to get some stimulation. Got it. But uh, glory and fame, consumerism, success measured by numbers, greed, abusive power, competition, ambition. Those things can be so involved in a church, and no leader is going to admit that what really drives us is competition with two other churches that we want to have more numbers than they do. They won't admit this, but it is actually driving the agenda. And in many of these churches, mega churches especially, but other churches, I mean, they don't have to be big, um, competition and numbers are so important. And we think that it's going to take some serious work for people who are leaders in churches to come to terms with the things that are actually driving them. Edgar right. Schein's group of people at MIT that go into major businesses, organization, institutions, to find out what's driving below the surface can spend sometimes three to nine months at a place interviewing the employees to figure out what's actually driving the institution. And you can't just preach a, ser a sermon and think it's going to happen. And you can't just say, oh, I know what's really driving this is this. And you, you might you might know some things that way, but it takes some very careful listening to, to find this out. And uh, so that that was uh, I think it's a very practical thing is to find out what toxicities and, and you don't get off the hook with with Laura and me. What toxicities are below the surface? If you think you don't have any, you do. And we're here to tell you that you do. Um, and that is, we, we think you need, to, you need to find those toxicities and realize how important and influential they are and see what you can do to eliminate them. Well, thank you. Yeah, again, uh, it's Pivot, the priorities, practices, and powers that can transform your church into a toe of culture, released today, September 19th, with Tyndale Elevate. I just, I'm biased, but I just want to thank you both for writing a really great book. And I think that the getting to work sections and the tools that you provide and the sort of on-the-ground nature of Pivot, um, I think that it's going to be a really helpful tool and resource uh, for churches. And so uh, buy the book, buy the book and give it to a friend start a start a reading group just want to encourage our listeners to pick up pivot it releases today again scott and laura thank you so much for your time and for writing a really great book appreciate it thank you cody thanks cody thanks for having me on guys